Hello everyone, and welcome to How Is That Legal, the podcast where we break down examples of systemic racial inequity in the law and policy and talk to experts whose stories of injustice will make you ask, how in the world is that legal? My name is Keith Bar. I'm a legal aid attorney, history enthusiast, and chief equity and inclusion officer at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Today we're talking environmental justice policy and the law with two amazing guests, a Community Legal Services of Philadelphia energy attorney, Contasia Scott, and Bishop Dwayne D. Royster, a community organizer and the executive director of POWER, an interfaith multiracial grassroots organization. Both of these guests bring such important perspectives on climate change, air and water quality, and environmental sustainability. They have particular expertise in discussing how black and brown communities in Philadelphia are disproportionately impacted by our rapidly changing natural environment. As an energy attorney at Community Legal Services, Contagious Scott advocates for low-income Philadelphians to have access to affordable water, heat, and electricity in their homes through direct legal representation and policy advocacy. She also serves on Philadelphia's first Environmental Justice Advisory Commission. As Executive Director of POWER, Bishop Duane D. Royster leads the Interfaith Coalition of Activists, Organizers, and Community Advocates in Pennsylvania in their commitment to racial and economic justice on a livable planet. He has served in pastoral ministry for the past 26 years. Together, we discuss the intersections of environmental and racial justice, including the structural inequities of utility policy, the relationship between gun violence and rising temperatures, and the adverse impact climate change has on black and brown communities. I found this to be a fascinating and urgent conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. Welcome attorney Contagia Scott and Bishop Dwayne Worcester. I'm excited to have both of you on the show. Contagia, I know you from um, being a colleague at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, but can you introduce yourself to the audience, um, share some of your background, same thing for Bishop Royster? Absolutely. Just a little bit about me. My name is Contagia Scott. I'm an attorney in the energy unit here at Community Legal Services, where I do advocacy to ensure that Philadelphia households have access to affordable water, heat, and electricity in their homes. Um, More broadly about me, I have a background in energy and environmental work. Prior to moving to Philly and working at CLS, um, I worked at an environmental firm in the South doing, you know, similar work, but more um, environmentally centered work. Um, And additionally, I also have a, a master's in energy regulation, bachelor of science in environmental science. So energy environment has really always been my life. And I really love working in this space. And I often um, see Bishop Royster at a number of events. Um, so I'll turn it over to Bishop Royster to introduce himself. So I just want to start off and say, first of all, I'm just a kid from Philly. I was born in Germantown. I was raised in East Mountain area. I bought my first house in West Philadelphia. Uh, graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School. Uh, got my undergraduate degree from the Center for Urban Theological Studies, which was in Hunting Park. It's a division of Geneva College. And then I got my master's degree at Lutheran Theological Seminary up on Germantown Avenue in West Mountain area slash Chestnut Hill area. So I, I'm just a kid from Philly uh, that loves this city uh, and wants to be able to see 
at Thrive, but I also serve as the executive director of Power Interfaith, which is the state of Pennsylvania's largest faith-based organizing movement. We are a broad-based organizing movement of people working towards racial and economic justice on a livable planet. Uh, we are Christian, Jewish, Muslim. Uh, we are uh, Sikh. We are Hindu. We are uh, ethical humanist. We are uh, Unitarian Universalist and members of Society of Friends that are a part of our organization. We're black, we're white, uh, we're Latinx, we are Asian Pacific Islander, we are indigenous, we're biracial, we're Jewish. We come from a multiple different uh, places and locations, uh, spaces. Uh, we are rich and some of us are poor. Uh, we come from every aspect of of Philadelphia and now uh, power has grown to begin spreading out across the state of Pennsylvania. So we're in areas like Allentown and Lancaster and Bucks County and the metro counties around Philadelphia. We're looking to grow. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Uh, at a time when climate change and the impact of environmental policies on marginalized communities are so vital and are such vital issues, I'm excited to have both of you with, with your vast knowledge and viewpoints and experiences on the show. And so speaking of experiences, uh, so the name of this show is How Is That Legal? Uh, is there a specific instance, and I, I want both of you to answer this question, um, is there a specific instance, maybe earlier in your life as a young attorney and advocate, uh, where you researched or experienced or had some type of interaction with a discriminatory policy that shocked you and made you ask yourself, how is that legal? <laughs> I'm trying to think about which experience to, to go with. <laughs> I understand that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, this is a story I told, uh, actually testified on uh, Friday uh, before hearing, and I think Miss Scott was there as well. Um, and I talked about the story about when I bought my first house at the age of 25 in West Philadelphia. I lived on Wyalusing Avenue, 57th Wyalusing in West Philadelphia, and I was so excited. I bought this house, two and a half story, it had five bedrooms, three bathrooms. It's a row house, though. Let me just be mindful of that. It's a row house. And, um, you know, I was a young preacher, wasn't really making a huge sum of money. Literally, my the, my house was across the street from the congregation I was serving at the time, Camphor Memorial United Methodist Church. And um, in the, that winter came and I got my first gas bill, my first like regular, like the winter gas bill, not the summer gas bill, but the winter gas bill. <laughs> And there's a difference between the two. And everybody who uses PGW or has utilities exactly. understand there's a difference between the two. Right. Um, and I got that first gas bill and it was like $800. Um, and this is 1995. This is not like last year. <laughs> this is 1995. Um, and that really created a snowball effect on me and my family. And, um, you know, I called to get some help from the electric company and uh there wasn't really a lot of help there and it caused some challenges over several years because of course each each month the bill snowballed and snowballed and snowballed and at some point you just want to stop and ask yourself is that legal that we can treat people like that in the midst of a winter that we can constantly be threatening to shut off their utilities put them in families at risk um you know the houses they're old and we want to be able to maintain those great houses in Philadelphia. But uh, that was that was a real problem. I always had a question, was that legal? 
So that, yeah, that's, that's one of my stories. I mean, I had a bunch of other ones with the Philadelphia police department, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to follow up with regard to, to your story, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing Contagia's point. So just thinking about something that makes me think, how is that legal? Where there's a particular city policy that is legal. And I'm still like, how is this legal? Um, so when I moved to Philadelphia for this job, I think the first, as I was getting acclimated to the work, one of the things that shocked me um, is about how water debt um, in the city of Philadelphia runs with the property and that someone, if they have enough water debt accumulated, they can lose their home to a sheriff's sale. Now for me, you know, my personal philosophy is water is a human right. I think the UN agrees with me, um, but our policies don't necessarily reflect that. Um, so, you know, when you think about um, policies that have discriminatory or disparate impacts on certain populations, you know, when you think of the lack of affordability of water and how water debt accumulates in the city, it tracks with, you know, some of the other issues of poverty we, we see, you know, that black and brown Latinx communities are the ones who are um, disproportionately impacted. Um, and then on top of that, we see in Philadelphia that it's a silly city with a large number of low-income homeowners and also a large number of homes that have tangled title issues. So when I say tangled title, it means, you know, a grandparent or someone down the line um, may have passed away. They didn't have a will. Someone moved in the home, never got the deed um, transferred to someone else's name. So it's just kind of run through the family. But that creates an issue where, you know, if there's an affordability program in the city, if your name isn't on the bill for the water account, then you can't have access to some of these services as a water department customer. So you see families, you know, in the past, um, losing their homes as they have 20, 30, $40,000 water debt that has passed on from generation to generation. Um, and, you know, fortunately through some advocacy uh, in the past, you know, decade or so um, by some of my colleagues at CLS and some council members, they were able to come up with um, a water department affordability program that kind of aims to um, address some of these issues where people can have forgiveness of water debt and water bills based on their um, income monthly. But that was a major concern, you know, not even a decade ago that people were losing their homes just for water debt. Um, so that's still something to me that just baffles me. Um, and I'm happy that the city is taking steps to address this issue. Um, but, you know, for me, losing losing your home over a water bill is unfathomable. And my heart is with those who have had to experience this in the past. You know, climate is uh, a major issue. And this question is actually for you, um, Bishop Royster. I heard you. I was researching you and listening to one of your conversations on WRD. Uh, and I heard you uh, uh, make a hot take with regard to the prioritization of climate change uh, and it being probably the, one of the most important issues uh, in Philadelphia. And I'd love for you to um, elaborate on that, if you may. Sure. Thank you for that. So, I mean, I think when we think about climate, when we think about environment, um, we need to understand that these are all a part of a very interconnected system. 
Um, and I think a lot of times we will try to make it like, oh, environment and climate is that white thing over there and not recognize <laughs> that it actually has deep impact on our communities as well. As a person who grew up with asthma in the city of Philadelphia, environmental conditions are very critical uh, to what happens in our state. You can probably hear it now, my allergies are acting up and so it's triggering something for me uh, even at this moment in time as we're, we're talking right now. So, you know, we need to have a really deep understanding that first of all, the planet is, is a finite resource. It has a capability of being infinite, but the way we're using it is very finite. Uh, the way we're, 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 we're stripping coal, the way that we're dealing with uh, uh, fracked gas, the way we're dealing with oil uh, actually has a deep uh, uh, implication and puts a time limit on the planet as we understand it. When we actually have other resources that are available to us right now that are absolutely renewable, like solar, like wind, like geothermal energy, uh, and other forms of energy that we're actually able to derive uh, the power that we need in, in those spaces. But we choose to use oil, gas, um, you know, other resources that are not renewable and, and poison the planet, which is actually poisoning us right where we are. When we think about all the congestion in Philadelphia, all the folk living next to each other, um, you know, smog, all the cars, you know, that actually has a deep impact on our community, our well-being, our way of being. And when we look at the city of Philadelphia, when we are trying to figure out, like, what's happening, this, this, this sense of this nauseous not six fumes, the the fact that we can't walk down the street without fear getting hit by a car uh, because there's so many cars that are moving around. It creates um, sort of a level of anxiety and also, I think, tied to all the other issues around violence, around housing, around education, uh, around, you know, economic stability in our community creates this deep sense of hopelessness. If I can't get up in the morning and breathe fresh air. If I can't get up in the morning and see the sun because of the pollution in the air, if I can't walk down the street and see trees growing and see green grass, then there's a sense to which there's a level of hopelessness, right? That we're just living in a concrete jungle. And Philadelphia is not a concrete jungle. Uh, there, there are plenty of spaces and green spaces that need to be developed or redeveloped where people are actually able to live and grow. So I think we have a tendency to say, oh, that, that the main concern is gun violence or the main concern is housing. And no, actually climate, because if we don't have a planet to live on, there's no place for any of us to go. There's really no place for any of us to go. I hear that. I, I was, when, when I heard you say it uh, in the radio, uh, I was like, that, that, uh, you know, that's a really important take. That's a really um, important take that if we don't have a planet to go to, you know, that, that takes priority uh, over all the things. And also I was doing some research with regard to spatial discrimination, architectural discrimination, um, and how, uh, like you say, when you don't have trees and it's just a concrete jungle, how that actually affects um, violence. Um, and also uh, you said that you were, uh, you went to college, you went to seminary in what neighborhood? Oh, Hunting Park, where I did my undergraduate degree, yeah, at the Center for Urban Theological Studies, which was literally at Hunting Park and uh, 
I'm trying to think of the name of the street. That's uh, right before you get to the Roosevelt Boulevard, next to Hunting Park itself, the actual park. So I, I did my undergraduate, finished my undergraduate degree there. Right, and I was doing the research and I was uh, listening to the interview too, and they were saying that Hunting Park is 22 degrees uh, hotter than other parts of the city. And to yeah, think about like what what that means with regard to violence, what that also means with regard to uh, uh, utility bills, if it's it's 22 degrees uh, hotter uh, in that space. And so earlier you were talking to George, so you were talking about um, the dealings, you, you say. And so this question is actually for Contasia. Like, what are the couple of the main energy policy choices by our government, local and otherwise, that affect our daily lives that you think the average person is unaware of, uh, but should be aware of, right? So, like, what are some of those dealings, Contasia? You know, I think that's a hard question for me to answer, right? So when I when I think about climate change and environmental policies, you know, I think on, on many levels, I think, you know, internationally, climate change is a very pressing issue. Nationally, climate change is a very pressing, pressing issue. In the Northeast, it's a pressing issue. In the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it's a pressing issue. In Philadelphia, it's a pressing issue. You know, in Hunting Park, <laughs> it's a pressing issue. So it's kind of kind of hard for me, I think. I get overwhelmed, honestly, thinking about the various policies that impact us. So I think my personal philosophy is to try to um, think about the things that I, I, I could work towards and impact. And I think that's mostly local and state policy. Um, and I think when we think about the city of Philadelphia right now, um, the the city has a goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2050. And, you know, what, what does that mean for the city? That means, you know, buildings and cars and housing stock and, um, you know, our, our sources of energy, as Bishop Royster has said, you know, whether we're using renewable energies or fossil fuels, how are we going to meet that obligation, um, as many of you have heard, you know, there's there's different um, things that scientists have said, saying that we have to take major action, whether it be by 2030, 2040, 2050. Um, but I think that we, you know, um, engaging on a local and state level, um, engaging with your council members, engaging with your representatives about um, legislation that could have, um, you know, that that can advance the goal of it, of um, addressing climate change and also addressing the populations that are going to be most impacted by climate change, which is, you know, black and brown communities, low income communities. You know, we've we've seen the impacts of climate change over the past, you know, just the past year in Philadelphia where the Vine Street Expressway was under 20 feet of water, where, you know, there are a number of businesses and homes that were underwater along the Schuylkill. Um, and, you know, that that also goes to green infrastructure. Um, having um, trees actually is very important um, because they absorb water and they also create clean oxygen. Um, and then just the different zoning and housing policies that might be in place, having affordable housing um, so that we can um, limit the impacts of, you know, urban sprawl. Um, 
and having communities more closely together. I think there are just a number of different issues to really keep your eye on um, and be engaged on, especially in the city of Philadelphia. We have major elections coming up, and that is, um, you know, a place where I do encourage um, anyone to just engage with politicians about what their their stances are, because I think we're at a place where we don't have a there. We can no longer drag our feet on climate change. We have to act. Um, it's just a matter of who's actually going to do it. So, um, you know, there. This kind of goes to another point that I was going to make about how interrelated everything is, kind of touched on it, but basically everything is related as it comes to climate change and all of these different policies. So I just think it's just very important that we all engage in our communities and with our representatives um, to, to make strides towards a better, cleaner environment and future. So I'd like to elaborate more on this. One of the goals and uh, purposes that I, at least I see for uh, this podcast is to really give people um, information and to be in conversation and to make that information accessible and practical um, for them um, and to their lives. And so with regard to us saying that all these things are interconnected uh, and related, um, can you... Uh, give clear examples of uh, the connectedness of this. I know, Bishop Royster, you actually were talking about it very early on in the conversation as it relates to utilities and housing. And so if we could just kind of very clearly, specifically kind of uh, draw those connections, uh, that that would be helpful. Yeah, let me, uh, let me, actually, we had a town hall meeting with our, 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 what we call our Live Free team, which is working on police accountability and gun violence and others not too long ago. And in the course of that, um, in the course of that town hall meeting that we had, and we had folk from around the country that joined us for that, one of the things that we I began to explain, and I talked about this this bigger notion about how all these things fit together around the issue of gun violence um, and, and how climate even plays into that and our environment plays into that. Cornell West wrote a book called Dr. Cornell West, uh, who used to be at Harvard and Princeton and now at Union Theological Seminary, who's a, a philosopher of religion, uh, wrote a book called Prophesied Deliverance some years ago, uh, and, and it was about Philadelphia. Um, and he talked about this pervasive sense of nihilism that exists in the city of Philadelphia, this this generational hopelessness um, that exists in the city of Philadelphia. So, you know, when we, Philadelphia is the poorest big city in America. So out of the 10 big cities in this country, and we're number six in terms of size, we are actually the poorest of the 10 big cities in the country, right? Deep poverty, generational poverty. So part of the the issue around poverty in Philadelphia has to do with housing um, and the redlining that took place in the 19th, well, the 20th century uh, for black folk being able to move into other neighborhoods inside the city of Philadelphia. They were redlined, prevented from buying homes. So black folk and brown folk, for the most part, were stuck in certain neighborhoods. When they went into those neighborhoods, there, there became a disinvestment on the part of state, local, and federal government to actually make investments to infrastructure and, 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 and services in those communities. So when you look at the schools in those communities, they're not the best schools. When you look at the, uh, the infrastructure in terms of just like buildings, buildings are old, they're not upkept, so forth. 
When you look at those communities in terms of policing, they are over-policed. Uh, when you take a look at the density of those communities, they're some of the densest communities that we have um, in the city of Philadelphia. When you look at the housing uh, stability, there's an issue around housing stability that exists in all those places. Oh, but when you also go back and take a look at the environmental conditions of those communities, some of those communities are in old refining manufacturing areas where we still have plants that are decaying, that we're using materials from long ago. Uh, there has been a lack of investment uh, in terms of green infrastructure in those communities as well. And what this does is that it builds this deep sense of hopelessness in people. And what happens is people begin to say, I don't matter. And that nobody cares about me. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares about my future. Nobody cares about uh, my identity. Nobody cares about the fact that I am here because nobody's willing to make an investment in me. And so when you grow up with that mentality that nobody cares whether you are in a house with lead-based paint or whether you are drinking water out of uh, a system that, that might produce clean water or not clean water for you, when you have all these challenges, when all you see is police officers scanning your street and lights flashing in the middle of the night and you hear gunshots firing off, it's because people get this sense of hopelessness. And so there's this deep sense of hopelessness that all these systems and conditions are manifesting themselves in that have created an incendiary environment in many of our neighborhoods that do not, it's not conducive for our young folk. And so they're angry and they're hurt because they have not been seen, not been heard, not regarded, and not valued as human beings in this society. So for me, that's, all of this is playing in that, and especially environmental conditions, because then we're told that those are white folks' issues, not black folks' issues, and uh, that they shouldn't be a concern to you, but they are because we have high levels of diabetes. We have high levels of, of hypertension. We have high levels of asthma that are manifesting in our communities, and some of these are all uh, related to the environment that we are living in and the communities that we're coming along, that we're, that we're growing our children in, and that causes problems for us all. Thank you for that, um, Bishop Royster. And I, I was, there was a question in there that I was going to ask how um, uh, environmental uh, issues uh, kind of have obtained these race and class distinctions and, and, and how how that association or those connections actually uh, uh, have come about. Um, but there's a, a question I have with regard to uh, the civil legal side of things and those connections, right? Because I heard Bishop Rushford talking about what it does to the internal person, right? Um, but I, I'm thinking about how when you have rotherization issues, right? These homes and the stock in homes in Philadelphia are old, right? And so then you have high utility bills because the stock the stock is not energy efficient, right? But then we have high utility bills, and then you get behind uh, how that affects things like the child welfare uh, like uh, possibilities because then you could possibly get neglect cases when your bills are cut off right when your utilities are cut off when you have no water or you have no um, energy or you have no gas in the home then someone could call the uh, call DHS on you and then now you have a neglect case so th those are the connections that I'm making Contagia are there any other connections um, that you can think about as it relates to like the civil legal side of that? Well, I think you said it, Key. Um, you know, 
when we when we think about the choices that that people have to make on a day-to-day basis utility bills are high they're high for for everyone but for some people that means foregoing medicine and that means not eating you know as you would and that means you know i can do without um this utility for this period of time, as long as I have these other utilities on. I think it leads to just, you know, these choices that families and households have to make just to get by. And, you know, I I think it's unacceptable. You know, my personal philosophy, everyone should have access to affordable water, gas, and electric service. I think they should have them all the time. Um, And, you know, when, you know, you made a great connection about how, you know, utility bills, they very much do impact um, the child custody of minors in this case. You know, people's children get taken away from them if they don't have utilities. And those are some of the cases that we see at CLS where we get a referral. Can you help someone get their electricity or gas back on so that their child can come home? Um, and we also, you know, kind of see as far as weatherization issues. Yes, we have Philadelphia has the oldest housing stock in the country. And it doesn't matter, you know, if your house is leaking air, leaking heat all the time, your electricity and gas bills are going to be through the roof no matter what you try to do to stop it. So Um, You know, the availability of, well, the lack of availability of resources for um, homeowners and tenants in the city who, you know, if they just had more efficient homes, their utility bills would go down. Um, You know, I think people underestimate the the value of weatherization. I think weatherization should be a priority um, in the city because it can actually have um, a very large financial impact on those who you know, do measure out month to month how much they can afford to pay towards certain bills. Um, so I think you 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 made that connection um, pretty well, Key. I don't really have much to say on top of that. I just think, you know, when we think about housing issues and home ownership issues, you know, always thinking about utility issues because you can't live in a house without utilities, um, not not safely at least. Got it. And so what I um, am hearing uh, both of you say, have you, you both have reiterated it a couple of times, actually, is with regard to uh, energy water affordability and uh, the need for environmental new environmental policies, right? And so when I was kind of doing some research with regard to this, uh, there seemed to be a tension between the two. And I'd like for you all to to discuss whether there is attention, whether there has to be attention, and how we actually should be thinking about the issue of uh, these are the changes we have to make with regard to the environment, um, solar energy and so forth, and also making it affordable so that the uh, when we are making these changes that they don't inadvertently um, or unintentionally negatively harm um, people with less wealth in this country. So I think this question about uh, affordability and, um, you know, environmental protection is a false narrative. 
And it has been a narrative that has been constructed by the oil and gas industry for the most part to try to justify their continuing use of oil and gas as a tool, as a as an energy vehicle for our country. The reality is, is that we are going to pay for this one way or the other, uh, whether we're paying for it in environmental impact or whether we're going to pay for it in putting out infrastructure. The, the, the infrastructure in Philadelphia for both Pico Energy and PGW and for the water department, for that matter, is old. It's all old. It's just old. And so when we begin to think about building new infrastructure and we're going to have to build new infrastructure in many of these circumstances, we need to, we need to incorporate non-fossil fuel energy sources, renewable energy sources into the mix to be able to solve that problem. You know, it's actually interesting. We were, uh, when we were testifying this this past week, uh, on the, uh, uh, the PGW um, uh, diversification study, and um, the issue got brought up about gas uh, and the fact that with the war happening in Ukraine right now, that gas prices are up and, um, you know, people have kind of backed off about, you know, trying to prevent, trying to go to renewables because we're opening land leases now across the country so that we can start doing more drilling for oil to be able to create a sense of safety. And the thought occurred to me that 10, 15 years ago, if the United States had made a significant investment in moving to renewables at that time, uh, we would be in a situation right now where the fact that Russian oil is not coming into the rest of the world or the United States wouldn't even be a factor for us because we would have already made that transition and we would have created energy safety and democracy in this country that would have benefited all of our citizens, not just a handful of folk that are at the, you know, the top echelons of society, the elite of society. So I think we're making investments in infrastructure and issues all the time. We need to be making significant infrastructure investments in this new energy that's going to create new jobs, new opportunities. I think there are new jobs that are out there that are going to be living wage jobs with benefits, hopefully unions as well. I think that they're going to be creating new jobs that are going to have renewable resources for us to be able to use over and over again. And it's actually going to lessen the impact on our planet in terms of the destructive value of what's happening with oil and, and gas, and we're able to use solar, wind, geothermal energy to be able to take care of our home. So in many ways, I, again, I go back, it's a false narrative as one of our, one of our council people love him that said, oh, well, th it should be okay now because, you know, now that we have Russia, we, we just got to, we got to go to gas. And it's like, no, this is a moment for us to wake up and recognize we can't live off of this and we can't keep living like this. We've got to do better than this for our people and our citizens. And we've got to give them a better way of being able to use energy to get around, to be able to use energy in their homes, be able to use energy for their businesses and use energy for our community so we can all have not just decades, but centuries to come on this planet. Thank you. I love how you brought um, job production into the conversation uh, of affordability because I think that um, portion of it is often lost um, in the conversation. Kentasia, did you have any a point you wanted to make with regard to this? Yeah, I think, you know, as a legal services attorney, you know, my my concern is making sure that the most vulnerable among us aren't left behind in this transition. Um, so, you know, I've, when I'm thinking about how all of these things are kind of interrelated and who can afford to um, make transitions 
and who cannot afford to make transitions. You know, I kind of, I'm constantly trying to balance that um, idea in my head. Um, I agree, you know, 100% that we need to move to renewable energies. I think that with the, you know, with adequate investment, they could be affordable for everyone to transition to these um, renewable energies. We already subsidize the oil and gas energy why industries why can't we do the same for the renewable industry in the same way um so you know i'm i'm thinking from an equity perspective of like um you know energy and environment for some people is a very pressing issue but they also have the means to afford to to focus on that issue like that, that can be a priority for them. Um, so for people who can afford to like solarize their homes, right? In a lot of states, they can sell that energy back to the utility company. And a lot of people don't even have like utility bills. Um, but for those who can't do that, they're kind of stuck with, you know, fossil fuel energy and can't access these technologies because they're basically priced out. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, there should just be more investment to allow if if this is a priority for us and it should be there needs to be more investment to allow everyone to transition and not leave anyone behind because as some people transition the ones who are left behind are going to be left with the with the you know rates and charges that have to be paid to these companies so i think that's just my my concern when i'm thinking about the balance between environmentalism and um, and affording utility bills. It's a delicate balance that I feel like I'm constantly changing my own, you know, philosophy on as I practice in this space day to day. Got it. So what I heard uh, both of you discuss were adequate investments. Can someone specifically say what is uh, what you mean by adequate investments? Well, let me, let me just uh, go directly to a policy that's actually being debated right now. So Senator Nikhil Saval from Philadelphia has actually put into uh, the, the legislature a bill called the Whole Home Repair Bill, uh, which would use money that's left over from the COVID money that we've received from the federal government that's been sitting in a bank in the, the state capitol and use that not only for Philadelphia, but around the state for people to be able to make home repairs. It would be a grant program, not a loan program, grant program that would put significant amount of money in certain homeowners' homes to help upgrade, to help them you know, get up the standard, to do weatherization and other programs like that. As a simple program like that could actually, I mean, if we could extend it, I don't know if if all of our legislature will allow this, but you know, if we did a, a program that allowed us to put solar on homes or allow people to tap into different forms of energy as a result of the of the whole home repair program, um, you know, not just weatherization so that we can continue using the same fuels, but you know, what if we were able to create? And this is this is Dwayne Royster talking, so you know, just <laughs> forgive me on this one. But you know, what if we were actually able to create a network of solar? on top of row home roof roofs around the city of Philadelphia, that could be an alternative network for people to be able to draw energy from. Uh, 
and we were able to use the whole home repair bill. People were able to put solar on their houses to be able to imagine doing something like that. You know, it's, 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 it requires some level of imagination and some creativity and political will to be able to make that happen. But honestly, that's what we need right now to be able to do this work. And so we need that kind of investment. We need leaders that are going to step up and make that kind of investment and say, yes, this is the right move for our people. We want our people to be able to live well. We want them to be able to live safely. We want them to be able to live uh, in such a way that their their that their environmental issues are being addressed and that they're actually able to be at peace in their lives. Thank you. So I have two questions before before we end, and and one of the questions is regarding right. We know that uh, climate change is a universal issue; it affects everyone. Uh, but as we've been discussing uh, in this particular podcast, is that uh, it affects some people more. Um, there is disparity with regard um, to to impact, and yet I don't see necessarily climate change talked about. Um, from the race equity or racial justice lens outside of those like you and like Contasia who um, are constantly um, talking about this work. So how do we make this climate change and environmentalism and weatherization and renewable resource uh, energy um, accessible to, to the day-to-day person? And I'm, I'm specifically asking you, Bishop Royster, as an organizer, what are ways that we should be framing this or talking about this? Um, and what are some obstacles that you've seen in organizing around this, or if there are any obstacles with regard to the framing of this conversation? I mean, for a long time, the money that was going into climate and environmental organizations from foundations and other places was going specifically to white organizations and who were not connected at the grassroots level, were not connected to people of color in a deep way. And so there was an agenda that was created that was not taking in condition, not taking in consideration the lived condition of folk of color, right? Poor folk, poor, poor white folk, including and also black and brown folk in this country, right? And API and indigenous folk. So there, there was a whole challenge with that. A lot of that is changing and so we're really grateful for that and part of uh, some of um, the the philanthropic community now is really forcing those big traditional environmental organizations to be in partnership and relationship with grassroots organizations of color to really be able to incorporate this conversation but here's part of what has to happen right so we we kind of get this big notion of climate, environmental issues sort of be in this white space. And then we go to talk to black and brown folk and they're like, eh, I got nothing to do with that. Now, um, you know, except that if you are Puerto Rican and your family's in Puerto Rico, it's having an impact on your island in terms of the number of severe hurricanes that are hitting that island. And so that's having an impact. So you begin to feel that a little bit. I think when we talk about environmental issues, I've talked to religious leaders and folk and congregations uh, all across the state and people are like, yeah, you know, it's not really number one issue. Oh, how many people in your congregation have uh, diabetes? Or how many people in your congregation, how many children in your congregation suffer with asthma? That's all related to environmental stuff, right? It's not just, it's not just a precondition because you're black or brown that you're going to have these diseases, although there's some of that there, but also the environmental conditions that you're in are having an impact on that as well, right? When we begin to think about how uh, uh, the weather is impacting us. So, you know, when I was growing up, my mother used to talk about the vast swings in weather as pneumonia weather, but she would have a few days a year. This spring season, we go from the 80s to the 30s, 
stay in the 30s, go back up to the 50s, drop back down to the 30s, go to the 80s, 90s, we drop back down again into the 20s, right? This is all about climate. And so you don't know how to address your family, you don't know how to address your kids, people are getting sick. I mean, all this stuff is a factor in terms of our own lives. And then not to mention, so I have, I, my uncle lives in Eastwick. So lives right off the back of the wildlife reserve that's out there in Tenecum Township, right on the border of Philadelphia. So when he bought the house, they were told that there were these once a, once a hundred year floods that happened out there. And that Eastwood community is almost all black. It's almost all black folk out there. So since he's lived out there for the last 20 years, these hundred year floods have seemed to have come every three to four years. So that's a direct result of what's happening with the climate. And so this stuff is actually impacting our community, right? People are losing their homes. They're losing value in their homes, right? They can't even sell their homes because of where they are at this point, because it's now considered a floodplain out there. That that actually has impact on our economics. It has impact on our ability to be able to pass down gener houses generationally. There's all these issues that are out there that are manifesting themselves. It's important that we are actually, and this is what power does because we do grassroots community organizing, right? We're actually having these conversations with people really asking the questions to them about climate. And, and actually people are like, oh, climate doesn't bother me. But then by the time we finish a 15, 20 minute conversation, they're now looking and saying, oh, wait a minute, climate is actually having an impact on my life. And so we're building a base of people, be black and brown folk, in addition to white folk and, and of all different faith traditions and communities that are now coming along and saying, wait a minute, this is a big issue for us. It's a big issue for us at Power. And you know we're an organization that's throughout the state, but deeply rooted in Philadelphia, but we're coming up and saying at the same time too, this is impacting our communities, our congregations, our people, and we need to begin to organize and work around that. That's why we support Senator Saval's whole home repair bill, because we know that housing affordability, housing, housing accessibility, being able to pay your utility bill is tied to the condition of your home. We want to make sure that you are able to stay in your home, stay in your community, keep your value up. But we also know that when you live in a better home environment, you are actually have more hope than you do hopelessness. So it's all tied together for us. We have to build out a broad, a broad group of folk from around the, around the city of Philadelphia who care deeply about this, understand the impact that is also local. I mean, look at the folk in South Philadelphia that were concerned about the refinery that was out there. They all got together. These were black folk, right? Black folk and some white folk that were out there. They got together and fought against the, the, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery that was out there because it was causing problems for them. We have to take a look and help people understand that all this stuff impacts us every single day and that we've got to work hard to uh, put that as a part, uh, a high part of our agenda in terms of justice and social change because it impacts every aspect of our lives. Thank you, Bishop Brewster. I really appreciate how you brought up the uh, the concept that uh, some of these things that we take as genetic are not actually genetic, but are, have to do with the environment uh, and the poor environmental uh, causation on these things. Uh, the last part, I guess I'll ask Contasia, right? Because Bishop Brewster was talking about what we got to do as it relates to grassroots organizing and meeting the individual person. And Contasia, what are some what should we be thinking about and what do we have to do with regard to uh, as a community or as a as policy, as like an institution? So I think I think it's very important to be community informed. You know, community legal ser services has um, 
a framework where we, you know, our individual cases and advocacy informs our larger policy advocacy. And it's just very important for, you know, me as an advocate and others who are also in this space to make sure that the community voice is centered and and we are informed by um, the community in whatever policy um, or, you know, advocacy that we're doing with these various agencies, whether it's, you know, city council or we're, you know, advocating for legislation on a, a state or national level. I think it's very easy for us as you know, quote unquote experts who work in the space and do this work to lose sight of the everyday, the day-to-day experiences that individuals and people in Philadelphia are facing. But as long as we keep, you know, engaging with community organizations such as Power and the various, you know, organizations, Philadelphia has a lot of organizing power in the city. It's an incredible wealth of resources and dedication to a lot of people who just want to see this city move forward. So I think that as long as we, you know, engage and elevate those voices um, as much as we can um, in our work, that that's the, the best thing that an organization like Community Legal Services can do. And it'll help us stay centered to our mission in the long run as well. Thank you both for this conversation and for spending this time. I really, it's, it's been informative uh, for me and I just can't thank you enough for, for having this conversation. And hopefully it's also been informative for the audience. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It. Thank you so much. So that was my conversation with attorney Contagia Scott and Bishop Dwayne Worcester. To learn more about Contagia's work, you can follow her on Twitter at Contagia Scott, that's at K-I-N-T-E-S-H-I-A-S-C-O-T-T. To contact Community Legal Services Energy Unit, you can call 215-981-3700. Bishop Dwayne Royster can be found on Twitter at D.D. Royster. That's D-D-R-O-Y-S-T-E-R. To learn more about Power, you can visit their website at powerinterfaith.org. Email them at info at powerinterfaith.org or call them at 215-232-7697. How Is That Legal is produced by Rohome Productions. Jake Nussbaum is our producer and editor. Executive producers are Alex Lewis and John Myers. Special thanks to Zakia Hall, Caitlin Nagel, and Molly Pollock. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Keith Hobar. Thank you so much for joining us.